Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. But I'm afraid we have never had, we, and I don't believe, I don't believe we'll ever have a fair election again. I don't believe it. That was the former president, Donald Trump, at a rally yesterday in Warren, Michigan. Trump and his supporters continue to sow doubt in the outcome of the 2020 election and in the election system more generally. Now, with the 2022 midterm elections just a month away, a number of observers are perplexed at the posture of large social media platforms, where false claims continue to fester and efforts to mitigate misinformation always seem puny compared to the scale of the problem. This week, I spoke to three experts who are following these issues closely. I'm Nora Benavidez, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. I'm Paul Barrett. I'm the Deputy Director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at the Stern School of Business at NYU. I'm Mike Caulfield. Uh, I'm a research scientist at the Center for an Informed Public uh, working on election misinformation. So we're here today to talk about election misinformation and the intersection with uh, social media platforms. And it's just a few weeks now until uh, there is, of course, a major election in the United States. Elsewhere in the world, there are uh, major elections about to happen in, in Brazil, of course, in October, uh, and in multiple other countries as well. So a timely moment to do this. I want to start with you, Paul. You've just published a report from the center on this issue and to some extent have kind of tried to take in to consideration, you know, how do we define this problem uh, and what are potential solutions But before we get into the solutions, can I ask you just to sort of state what you think the problem definition is at the moment? Sure. In a sentence, I think it is a lack of urgency on the part of uh, major platforms which purport to be concerned about mis- and disinformation related to elections, but are not acting in a way that meets that purported uh, concern. In this country, in the United States, uh, I think the big issue is election denialism, the the spreading impression that many uh, voters, uh, particularly on the right, have that our elections are corrupt generally. This is a sort of expansion on the big lie that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected in 2020. And that's now metastasized into this conclusion, uh, even an article of faith, I would say, uh, a significant part of the Republican Party, that elections generally are corrupt. And if my side does not win um, then the legit the election was illegitimate. And that idea is being spread um, in a variety of ways uh, by a variety of actors. And one of the ways it's being spread is via social media. And I think those companies uh, simply are not taking this growing crisis seriously enough. This phenomenon is particularly pronounced in uh, swing states, in the handful of states that actually determine uh, presidential elections because they're truly up for grabs. So states like Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, and Nevada. So uh, I think that that's where the heart of the problem lies at the moment. Mike, I want to come to you next, perhaps if you can, to give the listener just a sense of uh, the Election Integrity Partnership and also your research agenda, and to see if perhaps uh, you agree with Paul. I know that the Election Integrity Partnership has you know, done 
some of the most comprehensive work in terms of detailing false claims about the 2020 election and looking at phenomena that arise from the data sets that you've gathered there. Uh, and you've got some new results that you've just shared in a, a blog post about the virality of, of such claims. Yeah. So uh, what we look at primarily is election rumor. A lot of people think that election rumor is universally bad, but that's not the case. Rumor has a lot of really important social purposes, right? Uh, people uh, spread rumors as they're trying to make sense of things. People engage in rumoring, uh, sometimes to elicit official denials. People say, I think this thing is going on because they want to hear someone say, no, we'll show you that it's not. And all that is very is very healthy. But at the other end of that, you have a set of claims uh, that uh, where, where rumors and, and misinformation are really leveraged not to engage in sense-making, not to you know, call attention to, to real problems uh, of people in power, but to sow doubt in the legitimacy of the election itself in ways that, you know, as I think we've seen over the past couple of years, uh, in ways that have uh, really serious social effects, right? Uh, what we do is uh, we uh, look at and analyze the variety of election rumor that flows through social platforms. Um, and we look at the way it spreads and we look at the nature of the rumors themselves. And we try to understand those patterns so that we can address uh, both legitimate confusion of uh, voters and citizens, which is often leveraged uh, against their interests, but also in many cases, uh, stuff that is, uh, is, is more maliciously uh, oriented and, and, and targeted. So it's, it's really it's really the, the whole range, uh, the whole range of that. And might I just before I, I go to Nora, can, could I ask you perhaps to respond to perhaps Paul's uh, problem definition with regard to where we're headed in, in 2022? Are you already beginning to see the uh, effects of, of big lie related rumors? Yeah, so uh, I, I guess a couple really. Uh, short points on it. Uh, it's really common for people to cast doubt on the legitimacy of an election, like in a sort of a broad way. It's not historically unique. You can go back to any election. You can find people saying, I don't think that election was quite fair or um, it wasn't run. It wasn't run fair or there was some cheating or, or, or that's not uh, particularly unique. However, there's a couple things that are, are uh, uh, unique about our current moment. One is um, the specificity of, of these claims and just the, the sheer volume of them. It's not a few people focusing on one state in a general feeling of fishy, fishiness. It's thousands. It's literally thousands of individual claims that people are, are, are making. Uh, two, to Paul's point, there's a systematicity, at least on the right, there seems to be a growing systematicity uh, of these claims. It's not people making this claim or that claim, but building really this larger, complex interlocking narrative uh, about the election that incorporates uh, all of these claims. And that happens on the left, uh, too, to a much smaller extent. Uh, you saw some of that in uh, 2016 in the um, uh, in the primary race uh, with, with Clinton and, and, and Sanders. Uh, but that brings me to the third point, which is probably the most important point. The real place where these things do harm is where these things 
have pathways to respectability, these sorts of claims that are, are um, misleading or, 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 or completely uh, fabricated. If they have pathways to respectability, if they begin to be discussed among people that have power and make decisions and make laws and uh, have, have opportunities to intervene in various parts of the election process, that's where the real worry is. Uh, you know, and so I just really do want to stress that I, you know, if your Uncle Bob thinks 2020 was stolen, I, don't, I really don't care. I, you know, Uncle Bob can think whatever he wants. The real worry is, is starting to corrupt actual election integrity because as those, as those in many cases, lies seep into the process and the people that run the process, it's having adverse effects on the, on the process itself. Nora, I think of you as uh, being both a leader of uh, coalitions and also an advisor to groups that are working at the grassroots on these issues. Uh, from your vantage, uh, how do you kind of consider this problem going into the midterm? Well, I really agree that we have an urgency messaging failure. Uh, I really agree with Paul in many ways that this is largely overlooked. I would expand in one way, and I think it's just because of how I personally have seen as a movement, we began so many years ago in the 2016 and even 2018 electoral context. Think about bad actors and the infiltration of maligned narratives that as that happened, there were these uh, seeds that would do any number of things, divide people, wedge issues like immigration or abortion that helped define how voters then behaved, despite being premised on lies. And at that time, I personally, and I think a lot of people took a more kind of content specific approach to defining the problem. And what we've learned, and certainly what I've now seen over the last couple of years working more with and trying to pressure social media companies is that the ecosystem has changed, um, not just because social media companies themselves don't think this is urgent, but because they refuse to come to the table with civil society, with elected officials, with frankly, any other sector, researchers, others, to engage in the ways that our platforms are actually shaping the information we consume. So it isn't just that there's this bad stuff that exists and we might see it, uh, which is in many ways, I think, how some of us conceived of the problem years ago. But now it's that we've actually seen the business models, some of the algorithmic recommendation um, systems, other machine learning across platforms that feed us problematic stuff. And I say that in the most blanket terms, you know, whether that is hate, calls for violence, content that might suggest for certain voters that immigration officials will be at the polling locations. That's the kind of narrative that then, even if someone is a U.S. citizen, they might be worried about going to the polling locations in their perspective, you know, in their respective state. We saw that kind of content in 2020 on Twitter and on Facebook. And so I just sort of think the problem isn't just an urgency one. It's the complete unwillingness of social media companies, which now play a large and not neutral role in our information consumption. And their inability and unwillingness to engage to really put people and safety first 
are threatening not just the U.S. elections. They are threatening elections around the world. We have seen that play out in the Philippines, in Kenya. We are seeing it play out in Brazil. Um, It's no longer something that we can take a bite-sized piece and say, oh, look, here's what's happening in the U.S. They should know better now. Like, this is not a dress rehearsal. We've now seen four major elections in the U.S. alone in which these companies have known about it, been given evidence, and uh, I think are kind of now up in what I view as the larger set of major actors. It isn't just the, you know, disinformation campaign producers. It's the arbiters of our information consumption that are really concerning to me now. And I think that plays out across the grassroots partners that I work with, that groups are beginning to really see the issue isn't just a content one, but it is a a production and systemic failure from a lot of different actors. And so that means that the solutions are going to have to be very complex. And it's really, it's kind of daunting at this moment. Paul, does that correspond to what you learned uh, in assessing the platform's current policies and, and responses? I mean, if Nick Clegg were on this call, he'd say, Nora, what are you talking about? We've, we're spending $5 billion on content moderation and trust and safety initiatives. We've got the largest, you know, voting information platform on the Internet. Um, you know, we've made unprecedented investments in this area. I think that's a good uh, channeling of, of what Nick Clegg would say. <laughs> I certainly don't disagree with anything uh, Nora said. She can speak to um, her uh, experiences and her colleagues' experiences uh, in dealing with executives and employees from the various social media companies, obviously from her firsthand experience, which is much more extensive um, than mine. In my own dealings with them, which I would compare more to those of uh, a journalist than to an activist, even though we do engage in advocacy um, at the center, you know, I would say that for the most part, the lack of urgency, as I phrased it, or if it's worse than lack of urgency, as Nora describes it, you know, again, I, I, don't, I don't think that that distinction is, is huge. Um, I think there is a, a, a desire uh, to uh, minimize uh, the problem and uh, to uh, basically throw out a bunch of policies which sound fine in the abstract, but which uh, tend to have a very significant, if at this point now well-known, as Nora suggested, well-known uh, gaps and, and flaws. You know, uh, Mike emphasized the significance of influential and powerful people embracing false narratives about elections, that it's not just his Uncle Bob that he's concerned about. doesn't matter what Uncle Bob really says at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, But when most of the Republican candidates for uh, significant state offices in a state are making uh, election denialism uh, a central theme of their campaign, that sets up a a real echo chamber, uh, at least on the Republican side of the aisle in that state. And I think, you know, it basically continues to to dig the hole that we started digging collectively in 2020. Uh, even deeper when it comes to, you know, whether our elections are going to be seen as uh, legitimate by a, a wide, you know, swath of, of society. You know, some of these failures, I think, are, as they're, they're not secret anymore. We, we've discovered them and, and people have debated them, and yet they persist. You know, Facebook does, uh, as you were suggesting, Nick Clegg would also talk about, you know, their extensive uh, fact-checking op- operation, whereby they have relationships with, uh, at this point, you know, more than 80, I think, going close to 100 outside organizations around the world that do fact-checking for them. 
when those organizations determine that a given piece of content is significant, uh, not not just some something frivolous, um, that it's uh, has some virality to it, uh, and that it, can, it is demonstrably false, then Facebook has committed to uh, appending that finding to the piece of content and demoting it so that it's much less likely to be seen by many Facebook users. All fine as far as it goes. I, I would urge them to consider uh, removing the content altogether and keeping just a record version of it for people to study uh, as needed, but in a way that wouldn't be disseminated in any way, but leave that to one side. So you have this fact-checking system and you have a remedy that flows from the fact-checking system. You're applying that during uh, election season, uh, basically to everybody except some of the most influential speakers at that moment in time, political candidates and, and incumbents. So Facebook has made it clear since, since 2019 um, that that is their policy, that politicians can distort uh, the truth and disseminate falsehoods. And I think that's a, a central uh, flaw in their whole fact-checking apparatus. There are similar you know, flaws at other platforms. Twitter is just one more example uh, that I'll offer. You know, Twitter has a, a so-called civic integrity policy, which again, in theory, sounds fine. They put it in place, however, only during the, as they define it, the pendency of elections. So that in March 2021, the civil integrity policy was basically turned off and they stopped enforcing it. And then they announced in late August of this year, we're turning the civil integrity policy back on. So for a 16 month period, uh, they just weren't paying attention to that issue. And it's precisely during that period um, when the falsehoods about so-called ballot trafficking corruption of election machinery and other components of the larger uh, election denial uh, narrative uh, are gaining momentum on places uh, like Twitter, often in the voice of candidates who are very influential. I would agree with what Nora said. I think, you know, the, the longer you look at this, the more unnerving it tends to get. And we'll have one set of problems this year, 2022, midterm elections. The real danger here is that we're going to see some number, it doesn't have to be a large number to be significant, uh, some number of, of uh, election deniers uh, elected to office in a handful of uh, swing states, the states that will determine who gets elected president in 2024. And rather than just barely hanging on by our fingernails, as we did in 2020, because a lot of state officials actually did their job and upheld the popular vote and certified electoral votes and sent them to Washington, where Mike Pence uh, did his job. Instead, we're going to have in several key states, I fear, uh, people in key jobs like Secretary of State or Attorney General who uh, who are looking forward to undermining the election if the other side wins. Um, and I think we could have a degree of chaos that will look make 2020 look tame. Mike, back to the Election Integrity Partnership, it did issue a set of recommendations uh, in its 292-page final report in 2020, yeah. um, which is an incredible document. There's an abstract, too. I just want to point out there is an abstract. So, <laughs> But um, uh, yeah, no, uh, we did uh, issue a bunch of recommendations, and, and, and some of them, I think, uh, were taken seriously. But you know, ultimately, the, the most important stuff the most important stuff is still broken. Uh, you know, so we talk about, you know, we'll talk about a couple things. Uh, you know, uh, one, talk about the the sort of fact-checking model that we have. It's good. I mean, I think, it, I think it's good that the platforms work with fact-checkers, but, you know, the fact-check arrives, you know, 36 hours later. 
And, you know, the average, if you look at the actual plots of how these things, you know, take off and, 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 uh, and die out, it's over. It's over. <laughs> 36 hours later, we see in chart after chart that we, we plot out, uh, we see, uh, you know, we see that quick rise up, the slow decay, and then over here in the very trailing edge of that, that curve, you know, we see fact check, you know, and so uh, that doesn't really work. It's a model that could work with some other types of misinformation. If you're looking for misinformation that's not around specific events, but sort of stuff that's on a longer burn, certain types of health misinformation that are just persistent, that don't kind of have these sudden uh, event peaks, that fact-checking model can, can work with stuff like that. Uh, but for stuff where there is an event and then there's this quick uh, rumoring and conspiracy theorizing activity around it that boosts it up and uh, propels it sometimes into a trending topic, um, the fact check comes too slow. Uh, Paul mentions another thing that uh, has been incredibly important. The, the idea the platforms have that the election, you know, the, the election period is where they have to look out for election misinformation has done so much damage, so much damage, just incalculable damage to our democracy and, and, um, and I'm sure to democracies around the world. One of the things that we found is that during the election, a lot of stuff kind of came in piecemeal. There were all these little separate events, all these separate little, you know, some of them kind of almost akin to urban legends that kind of hit people one after another on a daily basis. And that's not good. Uh, one of the things we found after the election, though, um, after the 2020 election, was that people came in and took all those individual events and they built them into this large, uh, as I said, uh, complex interlocking conspiracy theory, right? Uh, and so you had all this stuff that was sort of laying out there uh, at the end of 2020. And then, you know, Twitter and other platforms shut down monitoring of the election and just allow people to take all those little pieces, all those little Legos and sort of build this larger election conspiracy, which has now become you know, as Paul said, for, for some candidates, this is this is now the belief system. And and you allowed people to construct this incredibly um, false, but also dangerous uh, belief system online, because the, the idea was, well, the election is over, we don't we don't have to, we don't have to deal with this. We see right now, more new claims, new missing, new misinformation about the 2020 election now, I mean, we're getting closer to, to uh, 2022, but we see more uh, new misinformation about the 2020 election uh, now at this point, you know, in September um, than we were seeing in September of 2020. Is it hitting the trend? I mean, I think there are some things that you can look at. Is it hitting the trending topics? This I mean, I think there is some stuff that's going on behind the scenes that is, is uh, dealing uh, at least with some of the push into trending topics and things like that, but we don't have visibility into that. And so I can't say for sure if that's just luck uh, or if that's something more systematic. I can certainly say on the sort of variety and volume of claims, we see uh, you know, at least as many, uh, probably more claims in September 2022 about the 2020 election, <laughs> the past election, than we were seeing uh, about that election in September 2020. Nora, I think of some of the coalition work that you've done. Obviously, it's been very, very helpful and useful to have that work happening and important. But I think of it sometimes when I wear my pessimist hat uh, is slightly free labor for the platforms um, as groups are flagging information, flagging posts, flagging um, narratives, flagging problems on the platforms for the platforms. 
And I remember observing things like the Disinfo Defense League in the 2020 cycle, and it was all hands on deck. People were working 24-7, almost like being on a, a sort of sinking ship and bucketing out uh, the water as quick as it comes in. If the platforms are kind of a, addressing elections in an episodic way, but civil society groups you know, don't have the budget or resource to deal with these things all year long either. You know, I don't know. How do you square those things? Well, to be a little tongue in cheek about it, I, I do laugh when companies write back or, you know, after meetings that we've had, which I can detail a little bit here, you know, and their their sort of final comment is usually. And of course, if we've missed anything, flag everything for us. It'll really help us. <laughs> um, and I have to laugh because it's always sort of like the CYA clause, if you will, <laughs> uh, to make sure that if they're not doing their job, at least someone's doing their job. And thank you so much, Nora, and all of the civil rights groups that are focused on safety and democracy. So all I can do is kind of chuckle at that point. Here's what we've been thinking about, and this is across a lot of different coalitions. I think there are a number, there have been some really great moments over the last couple of years in which solution conversations have helped us move a little bit beyond the hand wringing. And that's really happening in the policy and regulatory space, which has been great. The corporate space, like working with companies has been so hard and to that point, just see all of the things that we've talked about so far today, you know, getting companies to meet with us, getting companies to respond, um, opening up what many have called this black box, where a lot of times researchers, journalists don't even have access to some of the most critical and basic information and data about these platforms. So where we've moved in some exciting strides on the policy front to think about how we can protect users, how um, solutions and other kinds of long-term reforms could begin getting drafted, conceived of, how we build consensus. On the other hand, we've been trying to think also about, well, what can we push companies to do themselves? Because not everything can actually be legislated. There have to be some things that companies do. And that's where a lot of the coalition work has been Betwixt and between, I am not going to mince words. Like, I think it's really hard when we know that these companies essentially have no good faith in coming to the table or sharing information. Um, it's really hard to try to bring them along any more than exactly as you frame it, Justin. You know, their response of, do my job for me, it'll be great. And so over the last many months, we have felt uh, across different coalitions, like it was important to help build a record that shows the companies, major social media companies, are not treating these threats as anything more than anecdotal. They are. And I remember in 2021, I attended a sort of civil rights meeting with Twitter as just one example. Um, and it was supposed to be a look back at the 2020 election. And there, you know, were some takeaways about how they're hoping to do better in 2022 and all of the other things like, you know, the Birdwatch program and what that might mean for accountability. Again, a consumer and user centric approach to moderation. I at one point sort of spoke up and said, I think 
you know, whether it's COVID or election or any other content that has the potential to be weaponized for people to believe something false, these are not threats that wax and wane, uh, at least for you as a company. You have to treat these things as evergreen threats, even if it feels like there may be surges the surge doesn't come out of nowhere. There is no vacuum. And human doubt, human curiosity, human suspicion is an element Mike certainly, I think, could even talk more to, but that also isn't something we turn on and off. So if you hear just a tiny little whiff as a consumer online of something false or concerning about a COVID-related official doing something, there's no barrier to then prevent you from believing another kind of official will do something. Those are really porous human behaviors, right? And so in talking with Twitter, I remember trying to kind of lay out this argument, like you have to begin thinking about election integrity, civic integrity, all of the other ways that misinfo may infiltrate people's feeds as evergreen. And the response was, Wow, that's really interesting. We hadn't thought of that. That was in 2021. Knowing that the midterms were coming, part of what we've tried to do across these different coalitions, namely change the terms, which is a coalition of about 60 civil rights and consumer advocate organizations, is pull together meetings and demands for companies at the highest levels to try to synthesize some of the problems, the evidence of failures, the evidence of inaction, and for us to present a united front to say, listen, stop preferencing hate. Stop showing people disinformation or calls for violence. Also, staff up and protect people all the time, year round across the globe. And then finally, increase transparency for people like Paul or Mike or others um, so that we really have a better sense of the whole pie of the problem. And over the last many months, we've met with companies, we've presented these issues, we've tried to talk with them about the urgency. And largely, the broad strokes takeaway is that the companies have provided us very little intel almost nothing beyond their public announcements from August or September, depending on when they came out with these election plans, and have committed to largely what they were doing in 2020. A little bit more uh, in terms of language protection and trying to gather data across languages. But the issues haven't changed. They've only become more complicated. And the companies have also not changed. Um, they've, in fact, stagnated and resisted engagement. So the, the basic question you pose, you know, how do you reckon with these episodic moments? Civil society can't do it alone. We can't. And yet we've been forced to build enough of a paper trail to try to show that failure is not something that happens in a month before an election. It is too late. It is September. Well, it's the end of September right now as we're recording this. It is too late for any of the major platforms to implement any meaningful reform ahead of the midterms. So let's just, for a reality check, understand that we are now dealing with largely what we're going to deal with over the next five weeks. And we are ill-prepared. The companies are ill-prepared. Um, they don't come to the table with an interest in really rigorous debate about what it means to be more prepared. And we tried to do that in April. We tried to do it in May. We tried to do it in June. 
We couldn't even get meetings with some of these companies until July and August. And to me, that speaks volumes to their lack of interest, to this being and remaining a problem that they string solutions together in the final 11th hour. Is is part of this the political context that, you know, there are different concerns about misinformation across the political aisles? Um, and of course, some of the individuals who may end up in powerful positions if uh, Republicans win the House in November. I'm thinking particularly of of Jim Jordan, who is one of the you know most ardent individuals advancing the big lie uh, in in Congress uh, before the 2020 and after the 2020 election. You know, are are the platforms on some level kind of bound to the politics of the situation? They know that. The Republicans might have subpoena power um, and they don't want to sort of upset them by seeming to pitch in with civil society groups that may be regarded as working counter to their own interests. Rick Hazen at UCLA, the election law uh, guru, um, offered that uh, speculation and I quoted him on it uh, in my report as you know one possible explanation uh, of what the motives are here. Um, and that certainly may be uh, an element of what's going on. Um, I don't think it describes the entirety of it though. The uh, sort of perplexing malaise that Nora described, which I encountered as well, uh, the, the seeming uh, almost uh, obtuseness uh, about the urgency of, of, of the larger situation, I think has a number of uh, explanations. I think we've seen documented particularly in, in connection with, uh, with Meta, with Facebook, a, a, a hypersensitivity to attacks from the right, such that the company has for years now sort of bent over backwards to um, try to protect itself against accusations that it is biased against the right um, by taking a pass on internal company proposals um, for various types of reforms um, that might have the practical effect of uh, moderating more content, downranking or resulting in the removal of content um, that would piss off people on the right more than the left. So that, that's a, a phenomenon that you can see illustrated over and over again, whether it's uh, Zuckerberg's trips to uh, the Trump White House or even his recent somewhat bizarre three-hour-long uh, performance art um, with Joe Rogan, significant part of which consisted of his basically saying, I'm, I'm really not that interested in these issues anymore. I'm focused on the metaverse, um, which is a, a tendency that at that particular company, I think we've seen articulated repeatedly over the years, this notion that if only you guys would just kind of leave us alone, we would do our business and somebody else would take care of uh, these questions of truth and falsehood and, and political bias. But I think there are other corporate issues at play here that deserve to be acknowledged. Uh, in the connection in connection with Meta, I mean, the company is seriously trying to pivot toward a new product line um, captured by this vague term metaverse, 3D, you know, hyper immersive uh, uh, platforms that uh, that Zuckerberg sees uh, as the future. Um, moreover, uh, the company is really rattled by the degree to which it is uh, losing market share to to TikTok and short video, a you know a, a product. That where it's just not competing and certainly not competing for younger uh, users. So, and also just general uh, mediocre to terrible uh, financial results. Its stock price is way, way down. All of those things, sadly, 
way on the degree to which the company is giving priority to the issues that we're talking about. Similar things are going on at Twitter. Uh, you know, everyone knows about the, the Elon Musk uh, situation where he you know, made a, a, a sort of a hostile bid uh, for the company. The hostile bid became a non-hostile bid. And, that, and then he decided to pull back and say, in the end, I don't want to take over the company. And now they're engaged in litigation uh, in state court in Delaware, you know, which could determine the future of the company. The, Twitter is seriously distracted by that whole situation. And its economic uh, uh, results are are poor. I mean, Twitter has never been a financially stable uh, company to start with, and and now it's it's really in great peril. The degree to which all of these things are distracting from focus on the civic integrity issues, the election issues, I think has to be taken into account. It helps explain what to me otherwise seems like a bizarre indifference to um, slipping into a situation where we could have a repeat of 2020. Um, it is bizarre at one level, um, and the companies still need to be held responsible, regardless of their other business troubles. But their other business-related troubles are very relevant to what we're talking about and explaining um, why the things uh, that we're describing are going on. Spoken like a, a, a true former uh, business journalist. Right. Um, <laughs> I'd my- like to jump in, Justin. Can I say just a couple things? Yes. Um, my own personal worry and attention is never on the disinformation arc alone um, or that it is dividing people because that's a favorite line, though it is in many ways. I think the more troubling issue is the ways that lies help convince people, namely policymakers, to develop structural inequities. And that's something that's now happening at every level of government here in the United States. Um, It's happening in our election laws, which are giving state officials the ability to usurp local election uh, results. It is, of course, the early bird on the Republican side, if you will, that has claimed censorship, which is, I think, in many ways, a misnomer here. uh, And the idea that tech companies censor political viewpoints is inaccurate from a First Amendment perspective. Um, But together, all of these sort of claims have helped create a climate and a, a kind of fever pitch of victimhood. And it's really persuasive. So that um, those that say they are censored, those that say they are unheard must rise up. I mean, it's a very compelling story. And what it's led to are barriers and limits on basic rights. So the end result is not just that people have more hate in their hearts, but that the ways we engage with democracy and with each other are harder. And they will um, necessarily, I think, give government ultimately the ability to pick and choose who has the right to speak, the right to vote, the right to do any number of things. And I'm not sure what that political moment now should be calling for from others, though it points to the need for a kind of existential consensus building, because this is not the tobacco era regulatory moment. This is something else. Um, And so comparisons have often been made to that kind of, you know, many, you know, decades ago issue where policymakers grappled with it. But this is so much more 
insidious and sneaky that I, I think ultimately it's going to take a while for that consensus building to reach the fever pitch it needs. Mike, you know, as a scientist kind of studying this as phenomena, right, that's occurring in these systems and occurring in this broader political context. Um, I don't know. Do, do you see a trajectory here? Can you imagine 2024, 2028 being better um, somehow if, if certain decisions are made? Uh, or is kind of what Nora's saying, you know, and, and to some extent Paul as well, you know, ultimately are these platforms and the incentives that they create and the sort of architecture of them sort of incompatible with, you know, running elections that aren't tainted by disinformation and misinformation. I'm going to just deal with the the first half of that. The second half of that's like a seminar course. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if people are familiar with this, this term from science fiction, terraform. People heard they ever heard that term. The idea of like a terraforming machine is you, you want to go and make a, a planet livable for a species. So you, you kind of throw a box on there and it slowly changes the environment so that it becomes suitable for habitat, right? Uh, rivers start flowing, trees start growing up and, and so forth. Uh, and of course, some science fiction writers take that and they turn it on their head and they, they imagine scenarios where uh, you know, an alien force comes and tries to terraform Earth for their own purposes. And of course, to us, that was a dystopian hell, right? I bring this up because I, I think when we talk about trajectories, I think of, I wrote a post a while back that, that said, uh, misinformation uh, terraforms its environment, right? The, the, the misinformation, disinformation that gets out there and is produced, um, we sometimes talk about playing whack-a-mole with these individual items and so forth, right? But what happens over time is disinformation pushes a sort of ideology in an environment that makes it easier to push more disinformation. And that's kind of what you're seeing now, right? You see in 2016, some, some early, early signs of this, you see uh, sort of a broad embrace and in, in dissemination of this through 2020. And now you start to see that's moving up into the institutional uh, level of these things uh, where we're seeing, and that was part of what the ballot trafficking post was was about. Um, we're starting to see a lot of this stuff uh, in the institutional levels. And of course, Twitter now has this problem. It, it, it wants to um, preserve uh, the speech of elected officials and whatever, but the, the environment slowly been terraformed uh, to be really suitable for these uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, And so when we talk about trajectories, I, I, I have this, I want to be optimistic, but it's we're never starting from zero. We're on this every day we let this go on. The the environment is becomes more and more formed around these myths, more and more formed around these practices. And we not only have to start doing things right, but we've we've kind of got to undo uh, where we've where we've gotten. And I, I think from a policy standpoint, I wish that was something that people would take more seriously. I think sometimes people hear researchers say, well, it's not about the individual items. And it's not, it's not about the individual items. It's not about like, you know, the game of whack-a-mole, but at the same time, like you've got to learn to both play the whack-a-mole, which is building the next step of this thing, uh, while addressing all the things that have um, all the um, uh, harmful uh, practices and structures that have, have formed because you, you haven't been addressing that over time. And that's a, that's a really big challenge. I haven't seen any platform take that on to date, um, I wouldn't be in this business if I was a pessimist. 
yeah, but it's 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 a it's a heavy lift. Your comments remind me of uh, listening to certain platform executives uh, crow about you know their efforts to remove QAnon from their platforms after allowing it to fester and thrive and seeing, of course, the harm that that created, it, uh, almost sort of taking credit for taking down this network after uh, allowing it to get to that point, allowing so many people to find purpose and connection inside the QAnon conspiracy theory and community really boggles the mind on some well, And this is a great example of it. I, I, know, I know we got to go in a minute, but this is a great example of it because what people say is, well, oh, well, all the problems now are on Telegram. Right. This is, you know, the executives say, well, hey, we're we're doing good compared to Telegram. Well, how did all those people on Telegram meet one another? Right. Did they meet one another on Telegram? No, they did not. They did not meet each other on Telegram. Uh, so by letting that fester and letting letting these people make their 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 reputations and their living uh, off of this and creating these these networks, uh, you created an environment that, yes, once you pulled some of those people off, a lot of that moved over to Telegram. But you own that as much as Telegram. You're 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 the people that put that whole party together. Uh, you know, just because just because you kicked it out at the last minute uh, doesn't mean that you're not you're not to blame. And so, you know, the, the, there's a there's a sort of misunderstanding about these these things of that way. The idea that uh, you know every piece of content forms a network around it, which then forms uh, and promotes more pieces of content. It's a cyclical thing. You can't escape that. Uh, and if you don't start to address it at that level and start to sort of uh, de-terraform uh, this environment, um, we're just not going to get there. When I was a litigator, you know, years ago, I felt I saw there being a kind of episodic attention, almost chaotic uh, attention and fervor around elections. Um, that's just sort of par for the course, you know, in every nation, I think. And we're seeing it in the social media context and, and in the misinformation and hate context, of course. How do we bootstrap ourselves across all of these sectors out of that? Uh, I'm not quite sure is the truth. Uh, we, another phenomenon that is equally fascinating to me is the lame duck period, uh, where we're all convinced we can get everything done in the lame duck period. Um, and we can't. And so I think just it's sort of a, a kind of human behavior that we we stuff everything in and think, oh, well, now is the moment. You know, we procrastinated enough. Uh, but 2024 does loom very large. And as much as 2020 was, you know, pretty terrifying experience, especially for those of us on the ground that were monitoring and hearing from voters, 2024 is going to be all the more heavy. And... To me, that poses the question of what can we do in the interim across every sector to gird ourselves against the interventions, the interruptions, and what's ultimately the distraction from making sure more people are engaged across the board. Paul. I hesitate to follow these very good summary comments, but I'll offer a couple. One is is, uh, something I should have mentioned earlier. In, in this conversation, which is, I think of as kind of the Yokai Benkler caveat. Um, he doesn't see it as a caveat, I do. You know, there are a lot of sources for the problems we're, we're talking about, and some sources that are more direct in that they are both the source and, and they disseminate uh, the lies and the misleading statements. Um, you know, Fox News is hugely powerful. It, were it not for Donald J. Trump 
some measure of this would not be going on. His singular corrosiveness and, and the contribution that he's made uh, to uh, our information breakdown, you know, cannot be uh, overestimated. And then the endless podcasts and, and websites and on and on and on. So, so it, all of this does not come from social media. Justin, as you and I have written um, our problem with hyper political polarization, um, you know, social media is not the sole cause uh, of that. Uh, it, it couldn't be because we've had polarization long before social media, long before uh, social media was invented. Um, nevertheless, social media is, is a central amplifier of what we're talking about and therefore deserves, well deserves all the attention we're giving it. And a final, final thought is um, that actually we cannot solve these problems without the collaboration of these companies. Um, because of our First Amendment understanding, uh, the government cannot weigh in on content policies, let alone content uh, decisions. Uh, and we don't want it to. There's wisdom to, to the First Amendment. And because of the complexity and ever-evolving nature of the technology, the government wouldn't be able to keep up with these problems as they change and morph from month to month and year to year. So we're in, a, we're stuck to some degree, and we need uh, these companies to regulate themselves to a much greater degree, even if we get government regulation that many of us think would be would be wise um, as a partial uh, and only a partial uh, solution. So I think there's reason for pessimism. Unlike Mike, uh, I'm a uh, dyed-in-the-world pessimist, and I'm quite worried. Well, um, we've heard three different perspectives and uh, certainly expertise, uh, if a mix between optimism and pessimism. Um, and we'll leave the listener to decide where they land on that. But Nora, Paul, Mike, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thanks, Justin. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.